I'm Pastor Daryl Curtis, and you're listening to the 63rd part of my sermonic review of the last year of the life of Christ, in which my point is that the evidence for the Messiahship of Jesus Christ is before all of us, and all of us have to vote to either accept or reject Jesus' statement that he is the Christ. The following is a presentation of the Family Life Baptist Church in Lansing, Michigan. For more audio and video content, please visit FamilyLifeBC.com. On this 27th day of September, our lesson for the morning is the 63rd part of our sermon series on the last year of the life of Christ. And our text is uh, Matthew 26, Mark 14, and Luke 22, which says this. The chief priest and the elders and the entire Sanhedrin kept trying to find false witnesses to testify against Jesus in order to execute him. They could find none. Although many false witnesses came forward to accuse him, their testimony did not agree. God bless the reading of his word. Let us bow our heads in a word of prayer. Gracious God, our Father, we thank you afresh for the total sufficiency of Jesus Christ, for the perfect teaching ministry of your blessed Holy Spirit, and for his ability to explain your word. So give us the words to say and let us say them with liberty, with clarity, and with boldness, and that somebody listening might believe the report. Thanking you in advance for all that you are going to do in the strong and perfect name of Jesus Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. Now, thank you very much for coming to hear our message for today. And before we begin this, our next lesson, let us reiterate our reason for attending church. We attend church to obtain the mind of Christ, meaning to have the Bible illuminated in our minds so that we can clearly understand the principles that Jesus taught and base our daily personal decisions on those principles. We come to church because we want to be obedient to the Bible, which is the doctrine of Jesus Christ in an informed, insightful, and intelligent manner. Now, as we last left our last lesson, Jesus was being arrested after he broke up the fight that Peter started with the cohort of soldiers sent by the Sanhedrin. And the devil chose Peter probably because he was the leader and the boldest of the disciples as the focus of his temptation. And after Jesus told the disciples to arm themselves, Peter drew the logical conclusion that he was supposed to defend Jesus physically when Jesus was threatened. So Peter pulled his sword on the men coming to arrest Jesus and managed to wound one of the high priest's servants, cutting off his ear. But Jesus did not want the repercussions of turning his arrest into a fight because to do so would allow the devil to win the conflict. The prophet spoke of Jesus in Isaiah 53 uh, verse 7, when he said, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And Jesus did not speak to defend himself, but rather to set the tone for the entire passion experience when he spoke to Peter in Matthew chapter 26, uh, verse 52 through 54, which says, Then Jesus told Peter, Put your sword back into its sheath, 
everyone who uses the sword will die by the sword. Don't you understand that even now I could call to my father and he would send me more than 12 legions of angels? But then how would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen like this? Shall I not drink the cup the father has given me? Jesus was giving himself to those that were coming to arrest him, although he could easily have defeated them because for Jesus to give himself was the will of God. The passion experience was in part a conflict between God and the devil with Jesus Christ as God's point man. Jesus's real enemies in the conflict were not the scribes, Pharisees, chief priests, and the Sanhedrin, but rather was Satan. The terms of the conflict were simple. The devil wins if he can tempt Jesus into sin. And Jesus wins if he can resist the temptation to sin. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15 tells us, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. And the phrase tempted as we are lets us know that Jesus was engaged in the same conflict against sin that we are. Jesus faced a parallel temptation to the temptation that entice us into sin. The simple truth of our earthly reality is that the devil has tried and is constantly trying to entice every person that ever lived into sin so that he can argue against anyone's entrance into the kingdom of heaven based upon God's declaration that the wages of sin is death. And since the devil has been and will continue to be successful in enticing us, we cannot merit entrance into heaven based upon our own goodness. Our entrance into heaven does not depend upon how well we compare to other people, but how well we compare to the absolute standard of sinlessness. But God in his wisdom developed the sacrificial system so that one sinless person could satisfy the sentence of every sinner by dying in his place. The design of God is that Jesus Christ is the sinless person that will provide a sacrifice for everyone else by living a sinless life and, and then dying to pay the penalty that we owe for the sins that we have committed. And since the sacrifice of Jesus Christ was God's plan to allow mankind into heaven, the devil was especially interested in seeing Jesus fail. If the devil could entice Jesus into sin, then Jesus could not be a sacrifice for our sins. He would be dying for his own sin and the human race would continue to be lost. Now, I know that I've covered this concept many times before, and I think that I've repeated this concept in one form or another during all of the 62 previous sermons in this series. But I will continue to emphasize this sin situation because it is the practical and intellectual basis for the church. Ultimately, the goal of the church is not to produce good deeds, although the church does encourage all of us that have the opportunity 
to do the good deeds that allow us to live according to the dictates and doctrines of the Bible. The New Testament does encourage us to live good lives and treat our families and neighbors well. But the New Testament also makes it clear that God is not developing a utopia on earth. God considers this life to be a temporary life to prepare us for our everlasting life by developing our faith in Jesus Christ. Everlasting life is the goal. John 3, 16 and 17 tells us, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. So in order to save the world, in order that we might have everlasting life, Jesus chose to not defend himself when the cohort of soldiers and leaders of the Jews came to arrest him. In order to save his disciples, Jesus chose to heal the man whose ear Peter cut off. Jesus submitted to the arrest and was transported to the house of Annas, as Matthew 26, Mark 14, Luke 22, and John 18 record. Then the cohort of soldiers and the chief captain and the officers of the Jews took and bound Jesus. Then they led him away first to Annas, because he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be prudent for one man to die for the people. The high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I spoke openly to the world. I always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews assemble. I said nothing in secret. Why do you question me? Ask those who heard me. They know what I said. Now, Jewish jurisprudence depend upon, depended upon witnesses to ascertain the truth. Deuteronomy 19, 15 through 21 says, One witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or any sin that he commits. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. Established. And if a false witness arises against any man to testify against him of wrongdoing, then both the men in the controversy shall stand before the Lord, before the priest and the judges who serve in those days. And the judges shall make careful inquiry. And indeed, if the witness is a false witness who has testified falsely against his brother, then you shall do to him as he thought to have done to his brother so shall you put away the evil from among you. And those who remain shall hear and fear, and hereafter they shall not again commit such evil among you. Your eye shall not pity, life shall be for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. So Annas asked Jesus for a confession. Jesus' good legal strategy was to tell Annas that the law specifies that the Jews must produce witnesses to testify against him. <coughs> Excuse me. But as Jesus knows, the guilty verdict is already in, and the Jews are not looking for evidence, but for justification. 
after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, which was certainly a godly act. John chapter 11, verse 45 through 54 records many of the Jews who visited Mary and saw what Jesus did believed in him. But others went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done in raising Lazarus from the dead. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting and said, what are we accomplishing? This man is performing many miracles. If we let him continue, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. One of them named Caiaphas was high priest that year. You know nothing, he told them. Don't you see that it's necessary for one man to die for the people so the whole nation won't be destroyed? He did not say this on his own. But as high priest that year, he was prophesying that Jesus would die on behalf of the nation and not for the nation only, but that he might gather together all God's children who had been scattered all over the world. And from that day on, they discussed how they might kill him. Now, the high priest explains, don't you see it's necessary for one man to die for the people? so the whole nation won't be destroyed. But what nation is the high priest talking about? Certainly not the nation of Israel, because Jesus raising men from the dead will neither destroy Israel or start a war with Rome. Jesus is not a zealot and has no alliance with those Jews that wish to overthrow Rome. Jesus has counseled with and healed Jews, Romans, Samaritans, and everyone else that has come to him. So it is clear that Jesus has no political agenda. So what nation is the high priest talking about? Well, there are three nations in the Palestine. The first and the most dominant is the political nation of Israel, presided over by the king Herod and the Roman procurator Pontius Pilate. The second is the financial nation of Israel, which is part of the political nation and is provided over by the tax collectors. And the third is the religious nation of Israel, presided over by the high priest and the Jewish religious leadership. Now, the individual Jews are citizens of all three nations, as they are under Roman rules, pay Roman taxes, and also pay temple taxes. But Jesus is undermining the third nation. Rather than coming to participate in the rituals and give their offerings and sacrifices at the Passover, the people have come to see Jesus. The religious nation is losing revenue and influence because of the popularity of Jesus Christ. And after, after the religious nation sent their best men to argue with Jesus, the Pharisees asked the high priest, what are our arguments accomplishing? This man is performing many miracles. People are skipping the ceremonies in order to experience the reality. The Pharisees tell the high priest, if we let Jesus continue performing miracle and raising men from the dead, everyone will believe in him. Jesus is changing the religious landscape of Judaism by his miracles. Jesus is making the ceremonies of 2000 years of Judaism disinterested. The Jews are considerably less interested in observing ancient rituals than they are in watching Jesus heal and listening to him talk about the kingdom of heaven.
Jesus is bringing in a holiness that is more holy than the holiness of the high priest. And the Jews are being attracted to it. So now we know Jesus's crime from the perspective of the religious leaders. Jesus is upsetting the religious order. No longer will the religious focus of Israel be the ceremonies instituted by Moses, but rather the coming of the kingdom of heaven. As Matthew chapter three, verse one and two tells us in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Jesus is also preaching in Matthew chapter four, verse seven. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, there is a difference between the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of heaven. And you have to leave one to get to the other. God prophesied the coming of the kingdom of heaven, but the men in the leadership of the kingdom of Israel didn't want to give up their kingdom. So when they brought Jesus to Annas, Jesus recognized that the Jewish leadership was so invested in the kingdom of Israel that they would not be able to transition into the kingdom of heaven voluntarily. The Jewish leadership knew who Jesus was. His miracles should have convinced anyone of his identity, especially anyone that studied the Old Testament scripture as much as they did. But Jesus knew that there was no conversation available that would convince them. And so Jesus declined to make an argument to Annas. He said, I spoke openly to the world. I always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews assembled. I said nothing in secret. Why do you question me? Question those who heard me. They know what I said. Now, Jesus' reply to Annas made the arresting party defensive. Having arrested Jesus with no accusation, with no evidence, and with no crime, now they have no confession. And Jesus has proven by his answer that he knows the legal system and is not at all intimidated by their treatment of him. Jesus's calmness combined with their guilt makes them defensive. And so they strike out as the election continues. When Jesus said this, one of the officers standing nearby struck Jesus in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest? He demanded. If I spoke wrongly, Jesus answered, explain my error. But if I've spoken rightly, why do you strike me? And when the blow came, Jesus took it calmly and simply spoke to further convict the man that struck him of his sin. All throughout the trials, Jesus gives the Jews chances to repent. Jesus spoke to convict the Jews of their sins, not to defend himself because he needed no defense. Jesus came that we might recognize our sins and repent of them, but the Jews refused to repent. And as the election continues, then Jesus, then Anna sent Jesus still bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Those who had seized Jesus led him away to the high priest's house where all the chief priests and the elders and the teachers of the law had gathered. The chief priests and the elders and the entire Sanhedrin kept trying to find false witnesses to testify against Jesus in order to execute him. 
they could find none. Though many false witnesses came forward to accuse him, their testimony did not agree. At last, two stepped forward and spoke against him. We heard this man say, I'll destroy this temple of God made by human hands, and in three days I'll build another not made by human hands. But even then, their statements did not agree. Now, remember Deuteronomy 19, 15 through 21. The witnesses should have been evaluated and found false because of the lack of agreement in their witness. But the court is not looking for the truth, but for two witnesses that can stand up and say the same thing. God has confounded their ability to scheme with one another. And everyone, every time one of them gets up to witness, he tells the story differently than the person with whom he was scheming. But remember that the outcome of this trial has already been decided. The high priest who is the judge has already decided the guilt of the defendant and he is only considering evidence that will convict, not evidence to acquit. And since sufficient evidence is not come forthcoming from the witnesses, the judge turns to the, to the defendant for self-incrimination, just as did Annas. And as the lection continues, so the high priest stood up before them and questioned Jesus. Do you refuse the answer, he demanded? What is this that they're accusing you of? But Jesus was silent and made no answer. Jesus did not speak for the reason that I gave earlier. So the high priest turned to the oath of the testimony, which was legally only given to the witnesses to ascertain that the witnesses testimony was true, not to the defendant for self-incrimination. But the lection records, once more the high priest said to Jesus, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? I charge you under oath by the living God, tell us whether you're the Messiah, the Son of God. Now, the point of this trial was to send Jesus to the cross. The Jews wanted to send Jesus to the cross to keep their kingdom intact. Jesus agreed with God the Father that he would voluntarily go to the cross as a sacrifice to save all mankind. But the witnesses did not agree. The evidence was not forthcoming. And the only way that Jesus could go to the cross was to send himself. This was fitting because although Jesus was being crucified for sin, Jesus could not be convicted of sin. The sin for which Jesus was being crucified was not his own sin, but for your sin and my sin and the sin of the whole world. Jesus' situation was exactly as he told his disciples in John chapter 10, verse 17 and 18. Therefore, my father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again. This command I have received from my father. So without Jesus's cooperation, there is no arrest. Without Jesus's cooperation, there is no conviction. No one is taking Jesus's life, but Jesus is laying down his life voluntarily. He says, as our lection continues, 
It is just as you have said, Jesus answered, I am. Furthermore, I tell all of you that later on you will see the Son of Man sitting by the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus confesses that he is the Messiah. The evidence supports his claim. Jesus has healed the sick, raised the dead, cast out demons, cleansed lepers. Jesus has walked on water, changed water into wine, restored sight to blinded eyes, and hearing to deaf ears. Jesus has gone from one end of the Palestine to the other, doing the good works ordained by God, and no one, including those that are judging him, can duplicate his ministry. And it's not that the Jews that are trying Jesus are ignorant of that which he has done. They have already confessed that if they let Jesus continue doing miracles, everyone will believe in him. Jesus has done the works of the Messiah, but the Jews' disbelief rests on the prophecy of the Christ's birth. The argument started after Jesus walked on water and fed the 5,000 in John chapter 7, verse 37 through 42, which says, On the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this Jesus spoke concerning the Holy Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Therefore, many from the crowd, when they heard this saying, said, truly, this is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, will the Christ come out of Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the seat of David and from the town of Bethlehem, where David was? And the scripture to which the Jews referred was Micah chapter 5, verse 2 and 4, which says, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose going forth are from old, from everlasting. He shall stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall abide, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. So the Bible says, the Old Testament says, that the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem, and Jesus, as far as the Jewish leaders know, is from Galilee. Jesus was actually born in Bethlehem through a set of fortuitous circumstances, but the Jews don't know that. As John chapter 7, verse 43 through 52 continues, so there was a division among the people because of him. Now some of them wanted to take him, but no one laid hands on him. Then the officers came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why have you not brought him? The officers answered, no man ever spoke like this man. Then the Pharisees answered them, Are you also deceived? Have any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, he who came to Jesus by night, being one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he is doing? They answered and said to him, Are you also from Galilee? Search and look, for no prophet has arisen 
out of Galilee. Now the Jews know that a Messiah is coming and God has testified that God, that the Messiah will be able to wield the strength of the Lord as Jesus has. But the Jews also know that the Messiah will come from Bethlehem. And if they were actually trying to arrive at the truth, they could ask Jesus to clarify the biblical discrepancy, at which time Jesus could call his mother as a witness to testify as to where he was born. But the Jews were so intent on executing Jesus that they never asked the obvious question, but acted on their assumption. The lecture continues. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, he has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Listen, you have heard his blasphemy. What do you think? He deserves to die, they answered. Everyone condemned him as deserving death. But a declaration that Jesus is the Messiah is only blasphemy if it is not true. But it is true. And Jesus is going to perform the single most miraculous event in the history of the world to prove that he is the Messiah. But the Jews finally have that which they think is a damning confession from Jesus and began abusing him as the election continues. Some of them began to spit in his face and strike him with their fists. The men who were holding Jesus began to mock him. After they had blindfolded him, they kept slapping his face and taunting him. Prophesy, they said, prophesy to us, you Messiah, who struck you? And they said many other insulting things to him. And as soon as daylight came, all the elders of the people, both the chief priests and the teachers of the law, met together against Jesus to execute him. They brought him up to the whole Sanhedrin and said, if you are the Messiah, tell us. Jesus said to them, if I were to tell you, you would certainly not believe. And if I were to ask the questions, you would not answer me or let me go. But from now on, the son of man will be seated by the right hand of the power of God. So you are the son of God, they all said. It is as you say, he replied, because I am. What need, what, why do we need further witnesses? They said, we have heard it ourselves from his own mouth. Then the whole crowd arose and tied up Jesus and took him to appear before Pontius Pilate, the governor. These Jews have had their trial before God. They thought that they were trying Jesus, but the fact is that God is trying them as he is trying all of us. The evidence for the Messiahship of Jesus Christ is before all of us, and all of us have to vote to either accept or reject Jesus' statement that he is the Christ. It's not just the Jews that have to vote on Jesus. We all have to vote. Some of the Jews were blessed to have the opportunity to change their vote. Acts chapter 9, verse 1 through 20 records, Then Saul, breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus. So that if he found any who were of the Christian way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And as Saul journeyed, he came near Damascus and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. 
Then he fell to the ground and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul said, who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So Saul, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, arise and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias? And he said, Here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he is praying. And in a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my sake. And Ananias went his way and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you came, on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell something from his eyes like scales, and he received his sight at once, and he arose and was baptized. So when he had received food, he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. Immediately Saul preached to Christ in the synagogues, that Jesus Christ is the son of God. Now Saul was a Pharisee and was very likely at the trial of Jesus, but the Lord changed to, chose to change Saul the Pharisee and persecutor into Paul the apostle who wrote over half the New Testament and spent the rest of his life spreading the gospel of the one that he voted to crucify. And if we read our Bibles and study Christian history, we will see that 1.8 million people gave their lives in the persecution of the first three centuries of the church. They agreed to be executed because of their belief in Jesus Christ. The testimony of history is overwhelming. The evidence for Jesus Christ is overpowering. It can only be resisted by those that want to maintain their own kingdom, as did the Jews, rather than become part of the kingdom of God. So as we go down from this place, let us not make the mistake that the Jews made. Let us rather remember that which Jesus Christ did for us, his birth in Bethlehem in fulfillment of prophecy, and his miraculous life and resurrection from the dead. Let us vote yes that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, and be saved by his blood. Remember John three sixteen and 17, which says,
For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And that is our lesson for today. Let us pray. Gracious God, our Father, we thank you, Lord, for this trial that you uh, that you underwent. We thank you for taking the abuse and standing the beatings and the mocking and all of those things that they did to you. And we thank you for the irrefutable proof that you gave them that you were the Christ, the son of the living God. And we ask you, Lord, that you would that you would come into our mind, even as you appeared to Paul on the Damascus road and convinced him as he was going to kill Christians to change his mind and believe in you. We ask, Lord, that you let no one leave this place today without the sure, sure assurance that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that by believing, we have life in your name. And now, Lord, we thank you for all that are in the house today, and we ask that you would give us traveling mercies as we go down from this place, and then bring us back once again at the appointed time. And now, Lord, we thank you for all these things. We thank you for your goodness, for your mercy, and for your grace. And most of all, we thank you for your sacrifice on the cross, for rising from the dead on that Sunday morning. Thank you, Lord, in the wonderful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you were blessed by this presentation. For more audio and video content, please visit FamilyLifeBC.com.